0: It is impossible for me to think about West Irwin Church of Christ without the two of you. Impossible. Thank you. Thank you. As Davey mentioned, today we end a series that we've had the last couple of months on the book of Job. One of my favorite books. Odd for a preacher, I know. Don't you want to pick one of the happy books, Bill? <laughs> well, sometimes. The next series will be from one of the happy books, Philippians, which, interestingly enough, is written by a guy who was in jail at the time. But the book of Job is one of my favorites. The Gospel of John, probably my favorite. A three-way tie for second, maybe, with Psalms, Romans, and Job. Job. The book of Job answers the question that's voiced by Satan himself, will a person serve God for nothing? As we've recounted the story and the speeches and the book of Job, the message in it all, we know that it began with God bringing up Job. It's not Satan that brings up Job, it's God, brings Job's name up to Satan himself and Obviously, that indicates that God had a purpose in all of this for Job. Have you considered my servant Job, he asked him. There's nobody like him in all the earth. And Satan asked this question, does Job serve God for nothing? You've given him everything in the world he could ever want. He's got a great reputation, he's got a wonderful family, he's got wealth. He's got his health, of course he serves you. Take those things away and he'll curse you to your face. And just as God brings up Job, thank you very much, by the way, he also sets the limits on Satan. He gives Satan reign, but not free reign, not complete rain. He sets the limits. And so God tells Satan, okay, have Adam, but you can't touch him. You can't touch him physically. And so Satan takes away everything else, everything else. His kids die, all of his livestock and wealth are gone, his reputation is damaged, and yet Job continues to hold on to his faith and his integrity. And so round two between God and Satan start up. God, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him in all the earth, even though you incited me against him. And Satan again asks, Well, does Job serve you for nothing? Skin for skin, you take away his health and he'll curse you to your face. And God says, Okay, but again, God sets the limit. You can have Adam physically then, but you can't kill him. Which, as we have discovered, ironically enough, is the one thing that Job prayed for God, if you're this mad at me, just take my life, end it finish the deal. And that was the limit that God said Satan could not do. Job's friends come and they sit there and mourn with him. And in Job chapter 3, Job vents, world-class venting at God of why this was going on the way it should, Job and his friends all ascribe to a certain theology, which was the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. And Job had always believed that and he'd always lived righteously and he had always prospered. And now he was living the same way, but he wasn't prospering. And the problem is that is a generally true proverbial statement, the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. But there are exceptions and there are exceptional times in people's lives where it's just not true. The psalmists acknowledge that. The book of Job acknowledges that. And that was more than Job could handle. He didn't get it. And his friends couldn't handle it either. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar come along and they say all the wrong things. As I've said, if you want to know how not to do hospital ministry, if you want to know what not to say to someone who is suffering, read Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar and say what they said to Job. (laughs) Because it is all the wrong things. And it didn't help. And Job, the power in the book of Job, or in those speeches of Job where he is lashing out at God and his friends. Because he, a righteous man, is suffering like no righteous person should ever have to suffer. If there is a true and just and almighty, powerful God, this should not be happening. It's not fair. It's not right. Elihu comes on the scene, and he's younger than the others, so he hasn't had all of the time that they have had but he begins to share some things and yeah it sounds a little bit like what the others did but not really and it sounds a lot like some of the things that God brings up when God finally comes on the scene and then when God does come on the scene in chapter 38 he tells Job prepare yourself like a man get ready but it's coming at you you got your wish And God doesn't answer a single question that Job raised. Instead, he hits him with one question after another, after another, after another. And Job gets the message. God does what Job's three friends could not do. He shuts him up. (laughs) And Job's first response is to say this. Hey, I spoke out of line. I had no business saying the things that I said. I put my hand over my mouth. Silence. God has won the argument. But the book of Job doesn't end there. God comes at him again. Same thing. Prepare yourself as a man. That's all you are, Job. You saw saw yourself as a prince. Your friends saw you as a worm. You're a man. That's all you are. Nothing more, nothing less. A human being. So get ready. Because the eternal God is coming at you. And God hits him with round two. Question after question after question after question. With the basic message being, Job, there's a lot about being God you don't understand And the question is, are you okay with that? Will you be okay with that? Are we okay with serving a God who doesn't act the way we think an eternal, powerful, all-loving God should act? Because sometimes He doesn't act like I think God should act. Sometimes He doesn't act like I would act if I were God. Will a person serve God for nothing? And so at the end of the second barrage of questions by God, Job finally gets it. And not only does he say, I spoke out of line, I said things that were, I I opened up subjects that are too marvelous, too deep, too, too far surpassing of my limited knowledge as a human being, and therefore I repent in dust and ashes. At the end of this experience, Job could say two things about God. First of all, God exists. But Job could say that all along. He could say that his whole life. He believed and knew that God exists. It was this second one that he had trouble with. And the second one is, I'm not him. Job couldn't say that before. He might have said it, but he didn't really believe it. Because you see, when we know how God should act and will not accept it if He doesn't act that way, we have put ourselves in the position of God. And when God didn't act like Job felt God should act, then it threw everything out of balance in his life. And he didn't get it and he lashes out because Job, in all of his great wisdom and experience, knows how God should act. And we're that way too sometimes, aren't we? When God doesn't do, when things don't happen the way we think they should happen, when the news isn't as good from the lab, when the family doesn't quite make it like we want it to, when the job is taken away or when the job application comes back, no, we're going a different direction. It's during those times when the answers to our prayers is no. Satan asks the same question again. Will you serve God if there's nothing in it for you other than the opportunity to worship and serve the living God? My Jesus knows just what I want, desire, dream of, have to have, (laughs) well He knows those things too. And He'll give them to us sometime but not all the time because my Jesus knows just what I need. God knew what Job wanted but He also knew what Job needed and what Job needed was for his prayers to be answered with a very stiff no. So let's look at the end of this great book. The last chapter in chapter 42. After Job repents, there is a restoration, sort of. And I'll tell you why I say sort of in just a moment. Job 42 beginning at verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now you and I over the past couple of months, we read those things that Job said and they're not pretty. And obviously Job felt he went too far because he repents. But God comes on the scene and he affirms Job. And he tells his friends, you did not speak of me honestly like my servant Job did. Verse 8, so now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you. And I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Naamathite did what the Lord told him. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And so Job gets some degree of vindication. But at this point, do you think he cares whether Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar ever come around? He wants them to be saved and to be forgiven. But he sees all of this in a whole new light. He doesn't have the arrogance that he had in his speeches about those three. And God tells them, you go to my servant Job and you ask him to pray for you. And Job does. And God forgives. Verse 10, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. And you can compare chapter 1 with chapter 42 on that one. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. About twice what he had before all this started. Verse 13, and he also had seven sons and three daughters. Same number that he had before, but not the same one. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, verse 16, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man and full of years. Restoration, sort of. Because here's the question, does this restoration take away Job's experience or his sense of loss? Talk to someone who has lost a child and then had other children. And yes, there's some pain that that helps, but it doesn't take it away. James chapter 5 verse 11 says this, "'As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy.'" The patience of Job, the familiar translation says, Job's perseverance, the NIV and the New King James says, steadfastness, the English Standard Version says, endurance, the New American Standard says, with a footnote, steadfastness, the patience of Job is what the Authorized Version, the Old King James says. All of those are appropriate terms, all of them. And James, the half-brother of the Lord, says we need to have that kind of perseverance, that kind of endurance, that kind of patience with God. Job's pain and suffering were very real, and Job's reaction and response were very real as well. Yet he held on to his faith, though he did not make light of the struggle perseverance, steadfastness, endurance, all actually imply that there is something to be persevered, that there's something to be endured. Patience implies that there is something you have to wait for in order to receive. Paul would say in Romans 8, hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And I want to say some days for Bill, it's more patiently than others. Same term, same idea. Job steadfastly, patiently persevered and endured great loss and emotional and spiritual confusion by facing it honestly and turning to God with his feelings rather than turning away from God because of his feelings. And isn't that our choice today, right? When things don't go our way, when we suffer, when we don't get God. Can we still trust Him? Can we turn to Him with those questions, with that anger, with that injustice, with that plea for deliverance? Can we turn to God? Or will we say, that's it, God, you and I are done. You're not going to act the way I think you should act. I'm out. I'm out. Because when we do that, then we serve a God who has no greater understanding than we do. And I can tell you this, that's not enough God for me. Because I go through stuff that that's not enough for. And I don't think that's enough, God, for you. So let's talk about some lessons. Number one, there is a spiritual battle over people's souls going on that we can't see. And that's the truth. You think of movies that come out every so often, and one of them that came out recently, Sound of Freedom. I hope that you've seen that. If you haven't, you ought to, because it, it shows us through human trafficking the, the, the struggle and the spiritual battle that's going on in our world, good versus evil. This is from the world. As Eric shared, many of our classes studied the book of First John or a couple of chapters from it today, and that talks about the battle of good and evil that's going on in the church between Christians. Some who will acknowledge their sin and seek to walk in the light, and others who will not confess their sins at all. Good versus evil. Wade shared about that during our shepherd's prayer time. And I heartily amen that statement that our young families are facing things even I never dreamed of. We think of this great passage in Ephesians 6 that's listed there, the spiritual armor. We sang it earlier, soldiers of Christ arise, the belt of truth, the the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet fitted with the gospel of peace, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. All of these wonderful things, the helmet of salvation, they help us fight that spiritual battle. Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your spiritual armor on. The battle belongs to the Lord. And we'll only be winners of that battle if we tap into His power. It's His fight. And through Christ, He has won. There is a spiritual battle over people's souls going on that we can't see. Number two, God does not expect us to deny the reality of suffering, either ours or others. We should know that from reading the Gospels at all. (laughs) That great verse that I keep coming back to more and more in my life these days with everything that's going on for us, John 16, verse 33, that whole chapter really is powerful about this, but it begins and ends with this great statement, or a similar statement at the beginning, When Jesus says, people are going to do all kinds of horrible things to you, thinking they're serving the Lord. And then at the end, he says in verse 33, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In the world, you'll have trouble. There's the acknowledgement. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Nowhere does Scripture say we should avoid acknowledging the reality of the difficulties or the questions or the doubts. Nowhere. Everywhere it says the opposite. Because we serve a God that is big enough to handle that, just as He was big enough to handle Job's. Number three, God is more concerned with winning the soul than winning the argument. And we should be too. We should be too because it's not about winning arguments it's not about saving face and avoiding embarrassment it's about winning souls and if we win a few arguments along the way and we make ourselves look good and we feel good that we've stood up for the faith and we lose the soul what is the use jesus lost a lot of arguments He could have called down legions of angels from the cross. And they would have all known. He could have jumped off that high point in the temple at the very beginning when Satan tempted him to do that. And everyone would know. But it wasn't about winning arguments for Jesus. And he could have won them all. It was about winning souls. Yours and mine. The best proof of that, of course, is Jesus going to the cross and staying there in spite of everything that he heard around him have you been to jesus for the cleansing power are you washed in the blood of the lamb that's what jesus wants more than anything that's what we want more than anything and i can tell you that if we lose a few arguments along the way to that i'm okay with it if that's where it leads that's why jesus that's why job had to hear god in round 2 because god had won the argument but he hadn't won job's soul just yet but he did number 4 god can be trusted even when he can't be understood <laughs> god can be trusted even when he can't be understood I get it that we're to study and learn and try to know as much as we can about God, but I know at the end of the day, we don't know it all. Will we still trust Him? Habakkuk had to learn that when God told him he was bringing in the ruthless, selfish, pagan Babylonians to come and discipline his people. And Habakkuk said, Lord, you can't use a A less righteous nation to punish a more righteous nation. That's not right. That's not fair. That's not what a righteous and just God should do. And God didn't defend himself. He simply told Habakkuk, well, Habakkuk, you're going to have to trust me on this one. You're never going to understand it. And that's the first place in the Bible where we read the words, my righteous one will live by faith. Not by understanding. By trust. By faith. See, the book of Job is not just about suffering, and that's been the mistake we've made with it a lot. It's about trusting God. That's what the book of Job is about. Will we trust God even when we don't get Him? Will we trust God even when God doesn't act the way we think God should act? Is our trust in our understanding of God, or is our trust in God? And those are not the same. Several years ago, before our daughter Amy and Brian had any children at all, they were trying. They were trying, and they went through a miscarriage or two, and they ended up getting the words that, you know, this may not happen for you. And Amy wrote a blog during that time, and one of the themes from that blog was this great song from Sanctus Real, Something Heavenly. It includes these words Time to face up, clean this old house, time to breathe in and let everything out, that I've wanted to say for so many years. Time to release all my held back tears. Whatever you're doing inside of me, it feels like chaos. But I believe. You're up to something bigger than than me. Larger than life. Something heavenly. God may be doing something in your life today that's larger than life. That's bigger than your understanding. That's something heavenly. Hold on to Him through it. See it through. Ask the questions. Be angry. But hold on to God. Anybody can trust God when He's acting just like we think God should act. Anybody can trust God when the answer to our prayers is yes. Yes. Will you continue to trust God even when He refuses to grant your heart's desire? Will you continue to trust God even when He makes no sense? Will you trust God more than your understanding of God and how God should act in the world, how God should act in your life? Ultimately, our daughter Amy did conceive and have a son by the name of Samuel. She became Hannah. And her son was Samuel. And then another miscarriage. But then Ella May was born and then finally Will. The book of Job is not just about suffering. It's about trusting God. It didn't have to happen that way for her. They were in the process of fostering to adopt when Sam was conceived. The book of Job is not just about suffering. It's about trusting God. It's about trusting God enough to obey and serve Him, even when things just don't make any sense, even when we just don't get Him. If, like Job, I truly believe these two things about God, that God exists and that I'm not Him, then I'll be okay. I'll be okay when He doesn't act like I think God should act. I won't like it. (laughs) I guarantee you that. But I'll be okay. And what a liberating thing it is to accept that you don't have to know everything about God and how He works. You and I, we need a God that's bigger than we are, that's smarter than we are, that's wiser than we are, that knows more than we do, that can do more than we can. Job learned to trust that God, not the God that he fully understood. We can too. Finally, number five, worship is the right response when you encounter God. Everyone in Scripture who has some kind of experience with God comes away with the same repentance and humility, the same obedience and worship that Job comes away with. The Apostle Paul certainly felt that, and as he went back and forth trying to figure out what god's plan of salvation was what his plan was with the jews and with the gentiles and now accepting the gentiles and now what do we do with the jews and now with the gentiles back what do we do with everybody and he fought that for three whole chapters in the book of romans and this is where he ends and this is where this series ends oh the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If we can help you come and be close to that God, we're here to do it and we'd love to do it. Come as we stand and sing our songs. Have you been to Jesus for...